Hello and welcome to The Northern Agenda, your weekly dose of politics and public affairs from across the North. Well, the title kind of gives that away just a little bit. This podcast is voiced by journalists who are outside the Westminster bubble, reporting from the other side of the ever-expanding North-South divide. I'm Rob Pot... Well, no, no I'm not. I'm Dan McLaughlin, producer of the podcast, and for one night only, Rob is letting me say hello to mark the Northern Agenda's second birthday. Three Prime Ministers later, and more cabinet changes than IKEA, our daily newsletter, written by Rob, is still going strong. You can read more about the political stories that really matter to the North and from the North that you won't hear about from the national media in London at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. A bit later on, our Northern Agenda editor, Rob Parsons, speaks to Dr. Marie O'Brien about the essential role that Liverpool has played in developing life-saving vaccines. But for now, we've got the bunting out. And I've had an asthma attack when I blow up the balloons. It's our birthday. And of course, the best person to celebrate the occasion with is a person who's been here from the very beginning and is still keeping the Northern Agenda strong. Two years later, it's Rob Parsons. Hello, Rob. Hi, Dan. What an intro. It feels strange to be on the other side of the interview interview process. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's our second birthday. It was uh, April 2021 that the Northern Agenda came into being and uh, I'm pleased to say we're still still here going strong uh, a full 24 months later. Well yes yeah, so like you said two years in Rob um, how would you describe those two years? Well it's been a incredibly frenetic uh, and dramatic sort of two years of politics hasn't it? We were still sort of uh, deep in the pandemic it was still the dominant sort of issue uh, of the moment and since then we've come out of the pandemic and uh, into pretty much straight away into the cost of living crisis which is, is is now the big thing on on people's minds quite quite understandably and we've gone through three different prime ministers in that time and untold political chaos at Westminster so I guess my task has been to try and make sense of that but not from a sort of Westminster perspective because I think there's a lot of newsletters and journalists who do a great job analysing it all from in terms of what's going on you know, it, 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 at the heart of it. But I guess it, it, it matters how these big political developments play out matters a lot to people uh, in the north and, and you know the country at large, obviously. And I think it often gets forgotten what the impact of some of these things uh, is on, on, on the country uh, at large. So I think it's been very fascinating and, and and challenging i think to try and sort of focus on how things like the pandemic so for example the the extent to which children have lost out on educational opportunities during the pandemic like there was a big regional north south element uh to that and and so i guess it's what i've been trying to do is focus on those sorts of things those kind of issues while the sort of the palace intrigue and the Westminster gossip has been has been going on. It's, and it's not always easy, but I, I like to think we've done a reasonably good job of it so far. And, you know, we, we're two years into the Northern Agenda project and we have, you know, thousands of people read the newsletter every day. We've got the great podcast, which, you you know, you help to help to produce. And we've got a, had a few, you know, quite notable things happen uh, that we've that we've achieved over, over the last two years so it, it's been it's been challenging and fascinating and I'm you know I'm quite proud of what we've done what we've done so far 
Well, there's one word that you certainly couldn't describe the political situation right now, and that's boring. You know, the, the saying, maybe we live in interesting times. Well, that sounds like, like a bit of a curse right now, but plenty of material to report on, I suppose. I mean, what have you learned over the past two years doing the newsletter and the podcast? I guess I kind of knew this a little bit already going into it, because my previous job was at the, the Yorkshire Post uh, newspaper, which is a, a newspaper which covers a big patch of five million people in Yorkshire and Yorkshire is a very diverse region you have big cities small towns coastal communities uh rural areas everything in between and I think the north as a whole is 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 like that but but much much more so and I think it's just I guess I've, I've learned a lot about the different parts of northern England which I perhaps didn't know quite as much about before and you know what the big issues are there and just the I guess the diversity of Northern England is never and 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 the politics of it never see still still surprise me and interest me uh now because I think it's easy if you're not in the north to sort of distill northern politics down to some quite broad stereotypes and I think maybe that changed a little bit after the 2019 election, because everyone started caring a bit more about what you know people in in Wakefield and Bolsover and and Bishop Auckland were thinking, but I think perhaps there's still a sort of relatively cliched view in some quarters about Northern England. But actually, you know, the the, the North of England is as diverse as the country is, and you know, you've got Manchester is is as a city is thriving in a way that you know really no other part of the country other than london uh, london is but then at the same time you've got you know very more traditionally sort of affluent areas in the likes of i don't know cheshire and harrogate which have their own issues to deal with and then on the coast you've got a whole other set of whole other set of challenges so the diversity of the north is is one thing but having said that at the same time the north does have some sort of common issues and challenges and I guess if it didn't that, that's kind of the reason why the northern agenda exists to fly the flag for people who are attempting to tackle these common challenges such as you know it's quite boring but you know the, the economic productivity which is quite a dull term but actually it just means the amount of the average person in the north contributes to the economy and that comes down to a whole load of things like skills and transport uh and uh you know education and it, it and these are all the things that we talk about all the time and there's still if you look at you know the 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 figures don't lie in this respect and they still tell a story of the north as a whole not being allowed to the people in the north not getting the opportunities to shine uh and make the most of their lives in the way that people in some other parts of the country uh do uh, and, and I guess that is, you know, a large part of the reason why the levelling up agenda came into being and, you know, whether it still remains, a, you know, a focus of the government, I guess that that is a matter of debate, but it, that, that's that's such a big thing. Well, that's the next question I was going to ask you. You know, you, you were talking about sort of back in 2019, um, the North was promised milk and honey, essentially, and, the, you know, the levelling up agenda was the flagship uh, agenda of the Johnsonian gov- government. But is the North still at the top? of the political agenda, do you think, three prime ministers later? Well, it's definitely still true that there's no way the Conservatives will be able to get back into power at the next election next year without winning 
back most of winning again most of those seats that they won in 2019 just you know the 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 Westminster arithmetic makes that fairly obvious but if you look at the polling it's quite clear to see that the Conservatives are struggling they're still 20 points down aren't they nationally and they're so that which means they're struggling all over the country not just in the north of England but also in you know in the home counties where they're not it's a whole different set voters have a whole different set of priorities and the conservatives are worried about losing to the liberal democrats uh rather than losing to labor who who is their make the main opposition up here so i think that and plus also in terms of policy like we're hearing a lot less about leveling up which is obviously you know the, the agenda that boris johnson launched to try and uh, win over northern voters we don't hear so much of that these days and i think that is in some respect because there's so many other things that the government is trying to tackle you know cost of living crisis inflation small votes which you hear so much about the collapse of our public services you know the, the country's you know falling apart really uh, in, in in a lot of ways and and leveling up is such a big complicated and potentially expensive area it, it, it's not getting the the attention that it it used to get and obviously it's not leveling up is not one of Rishi Sunak's five missions that he set out as prime minister although I guess you could argue it kind of comes under growing the economy which is one of the five missions and, and I think it's not central to his premiership in the way that it was with Boris Johnson but obviously there's an election around the corner 2024 uh, I think inevitably because you know the MPs who want to get back in in these northern seats, they're going to be flying the flag for what they think levelling up has achieved. So I think the north will come back into focus. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I definitely would like to see it. It is it, perhaps not quite as high in the political agenda as it maybe was four years ago. Can you even sort of uh, define levelling up? Because it, for the first couple of years, you know, when it was first sort of used by Johnson, it was this general phrase and then they try to define it in the white paper the leveling up white paper has done a pretty good job of defining it i mean i guess at its heart it is you know this is something that boris johnson has has said the fact that talent uh, and ability is distributed equally around the country but opportunities to take advantage of that talent uh, are are not distributed equally and for many parts of the country a large proportion of which are in the north you have to uh, leave where you live to go and uh, and, and better yourself, um, which is obviously a tremendous waste of human human potential. So levelling up at its heart is trying to tackle those regional inequalities where people in, for example, Middlesbrough or parts of Lancashire, say, have far fewer opportunities to succeed than someone who lives in Greater London area. But I guess so that. I think, I think most people would agree that that is a terrible situation that and it, and it's been the case for years if not decades like that that gap between you know some parts of the the north and greater london has been widening for for decades it's something that everyone has been aware of for a long time but i guess what the leveling up white paper did was in 400 very lengthy lengthy pages which included sections on the medicis in italy and uh, things like that it it, it it sort of spelled out what needs to happen the, the the many factors that go into leveling up and it's not one simple one simple thing like it, 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 go, it goes back to a whole raft of 
different things, all of which have to be done at the same time, which is what makes it such a big challenge and is what it's a, it's a, a task that is going to take decades to fulfill and billions and billions of, of pounds. And I guess the with the political system the way it is, where you get prime ministers and governments changing so quickly and, and they've all got different sets of priorities, whether this sort of the longer term nature of leveling up, whether that will whether that will survive the sort of chop and change of politics. That's I think that's what concerns me quite a lot. I mean, we, we can hear in the background in your house there's a bit of work going on and there's a bit of work yes. going on in, in my house as well. I mean, it's all kind of work going on. Uh, have we seen any sort of big developments in the north? Have we seen, you know, the builders come in and any viable change that, that you know, that the government can sell next year in the election? Um, I mean, I think there's been a few ups and a few downs in terms of, in terms of levelling up. Obviously, in terms, like, the, I guess one of the, big sort of flagship things that haven't hasn't happened in the way that we all hoped was northern powerhouse rail and that was a subject of one of our uh, one of the northern agendas sort of things i'm most proud of actually are uh, uh, we before the big announcement about northern powerhouse rail was made we uh organized a set of front pages that were put out by titles like the manchester evening news and the newcastle chronicle urging boris johnson not to break his promises on rail, and you might remember one of the first things he did as prime minister was a big speech in Manchester where he promised there would be a new high-speed rail line between Leeds and Manchester. And but then, as things went on, people started to get worried that that promise wasn't going to be kept. And lo and behold, it hasn't hasn't been kept. Uh, sadly, there is going to be some new railway line between Leeds and Manchester, but not a whole new line. It's going to stop somewhere in the middle of West Yorkshire. Uh, and Leeds isn't going to get and isn't 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 going to get any of it. So that's been a big letdown. And I guess you know it hints, I suppose, at the other priorities that the government has in terms of spending its money not on big infrastructure projects, but on on the state of the public finances with Rishi Sunak as chancellor. The worry is that these big projects aren't going to get the same sort of support as when Boris Johnson was prime minister. But the I guess on the more positive side, there are quite a lot of reasons to be positive. And, you know, we hear a lot about the net zero uh, agenda and, you know, the need to cut our carbon emissions and create green jobs. And I think there's every reason to believe that the north of England is going to be at the heart of that. If you look at Teesside, um, if you look at the Humber region, if you look at uh, the northwest sort of Merseyside with, with its tidal power, there's a lot of pioneering sort of really great work going on to on things like hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, uh, wind farms, all of which are going to, you know, bring our carbon emissions down, but they're also going to create new, uh, highly skilled, hopefully well-paid jobs in areas which did used to have a lot of heavy industry, polluting heavy industry, and that, though you know, that that has seeped away. And this could be, a, you know, the, the, the dawn of a new third industrial revolution. That's what people are are talking about in these areas to and it could and it could all be happening in the north of England and I think that, that the one other thing I guess which is a reason to feel hopeful that has happened under this government is the continued sort of progress of of devolution which again is something that a lot of people would probably find quite boring and a lot of it is quite procedural and perhaps not of interest but I guess at the heart of it is the fact that we now have 
Metro mayors, regional leaders like Andy Burnham and uh, yeah, Steve Rotherham in the Tees Valley, Ben Houchin, uh, who are the recognisable faces of their regions. Uh, and they, the government, I think, is starting to see the argument now that if levelling up is to happen, it can't be them, the, gov- the central government in Whitehall, dictating it. It has to be done at regional level by these metro mayors who have democratic legitimacy and so that i mean the reality is at the moment that a lot of mayors don't have a huge amount of power or clout to get things done but that is changing and the most recent development on that obviously was uh, andy burnham the greater manchester mayor has had this trailblazer devolution deal uh, which hands him a whole load of new powers and money from uh, from central government he didn't get everything he wanted but he does. He will get a very big pot of money that he can spend as he sees fit on Greater Manchester. He doesn't need to bid for the bid to the government as part of the, the sort of Hunger Games style bidding wars that we hear so much about. And I think that direction of travel, if you excuse the jargon, is 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 quite encouraging. And I, I think it bodes well that everyone understands that this is what needs to happen. And you know, it will be it may maybe in five years' time it will be we'll be asking questions about has Andy Burnham delivered, has Steve Rotherham or Ben Houchin delivered, rather than has the government delivered, which I think is a, a good a good good direction to be going in. You alluded to it were um you know, you said that Transpoint was a highlight of the, the two years uh, so far, the journey so far as it were, the story so far. Are there any sort of other favourite moments, favourite things you've covered or any favourite guests on the podcasts, favourite colleagues that you've worked with, people who edit you and produce you? Well, obviously, Dan, you are num- number one in terms of my colleagues, in terms of making me, make, taking all my ums and ahs out that I say on the podcast every week and making me sound vaguely, vaguely coherent. That is always much appreciated. I mean, in terms of highlights, yeah, the train spotting front pages were really great and it was i'll have to credit our westminster editor at the time dan o'donoghue who came up with the idea of mocking up the likes of boris johnson michael gove rishi sunak as characters from train spotting and that that front page uh you know it was voted best front page of the year by one website and it really had a big impact i mean we've done a couple of other similar sort of united front pages across regional press one was urging michael gove don't leave us behind and it was on behalf of the sort of children in the poorest parts of the north and then a bit later we did another one saying to liz truss and rishi sunak who were battling it out for for the keys to number 10 not to turn their backs on the north and we've got some great designers uh who who we work with uh, who who put together some really eye-catching designs for that and i think it was great that you know the regional press who often you know obviously all the different titles and areas of the north have their own things that they they care about their own agendas but they were able to sort of come together as one for this purpose which was uh which was great i mean in terms of the newsletter we've done i've been quite proud of some of the work we've done sort of looking at subjects and using data to sort of uh, look at subjects in a slightly different way in subjects that perhaps don't get as much attention things like um the the amount that our, our town halls spend on consultants bidding for this leveling up cash one of my colleagues david dubas fisher did a great bit of data analysis that we turned into a story about this begging bowl begging bowl culture and we used a a begging bowl cartoon that our cartoonist graham bandera 
uh, who, who's been a fantastic addition, uh, he, he put together, uh, which was very effective. And similarly, um, you know, looking at the north-south divide on um, you know, the way asylum seekers are distributed around the country, uh, again, using data in a way that I think perhaps isn't done done that much. That was great. Um, I'm very proud of that. And obviously, interviewing Michael Gove in the back of a taxi, travelling through Manchester, was uh, which happened at the Convention of the North a bit earlier in the, in the year. We, we'd, we'd hoped, well, we'd been up, we'd promised an interview with Michael Gove, but as always, he was running late. He'd had a meeting with Andy Burnham, and basically he didn't have any time for a sit-down interview. So the only option was for me to hop in the taxi with him uh, as it went from the uh, convention centre in Manchester to the station and interview him on the way. And I was rather concerned about uh, whether the audio equipment would work and whether it would sound okay. And luckily it did. Uh, it turned out the the Manchester traffic worked in my favour uh, on the, on that day because uh, I thought I'd only get 10 minutes, uh, but actually it was more like 20 because the traffic slowed us down so much. So uh, that that worked, that worked well. And um, yeah, and, and it, it turned into a good interview. So I think, yeah, those have been a, a few of my, a few of my highlights. Perfect. Yeah, a bit of role reversal though. You know, you had to do the producing job. I've had to do the presenting job today, but thankfully I'm giving you back the microphone now for you to, to carry on. And um, you are speaking or have spoken to a really fascinating guest next, uh, Dr. Marie O'Brien. And she talks about the fantastic work that Liverpool has done over the years to help with um, vaccinations. But obviously you put it better yourself in the introduction, which everyone is just going to hear now. Now, it wasn't that long ago that the big story on all of our minds was vaccines. Who's making them? Who's getting them? Do they work? And how often do we actually need them? But despite the worst of the pandemic, now being thankfully in the rearview mirror, in large part thanks to the incredible rollout of coronavirus vaccines across the country, the need to protect people from vaccine-preventable diseases remains high. And in fact, a major issue concerning health professionals is the host of other diseases and illnesses that vaccines can help prevent. And the fact that for many of these, we're a long way behind where we should be, with millions of children missing out on vaccines during the pandemic. It's an issue medics are hoping to raise this week as it is the World Health Organization's World Immunisation Week. But actually, there's lots of fantastic work going on in our region in the north on just this subject, which could have a major impact on global health. So let's find out more about it from a great guest, Dr. Marie O'Brien, co-founder of the University of Liverpool spin-out company called Renew Vax. Um, Marie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rav. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for the invitation. No worries. It's great to have you on. So, um, as I was saying, this year on the uh, the World Immunisation Week is apparently all about the big catch-up on vaccines. Can you just give us a sense of just how big an issue this is and in terms of how big the task is of getting people caught up? Can you put it into, into numbers for us? Sure, I can try to do that. So, you mentioned the World Health Organisations in your intro. So, I'm going to essentially cite some figures from the literature, which reports that before the pandemic, we had a vaccination coverage globally of about 86%. 
And that after the pandemic, that level dropped to 81%. So you would say that, oh, it's only a 5% drop. It's fine. It's not small. Actually, that 5% translates into 67 million children that have missed out either partially or entirely on their vaccination routines, uh, programs. So if you sort of bring it back to a more, as I say, at the, at the UK level, and I'm not going to be able to provide any figures. I've actually looked at, but as far as I know, none of them has been so far. I wasn't able to get hold of them. But if you consider the UK and you sort of look at the proportion of children that we had in 2020 between the age of zero and four years, that's just under 4 million children. So just under those 4 million children have either missed partially or entirely on their routine immunizations. And of those 4 million children, about 0.8 million were under the age of zero. So if you take into account the MMR vaccines, which I know there's a lot of polemics around it, but the MMR vaccine is given two doses, so one at the age of one, and the second dose at the age of about three and a half, so in preschoolers. So you can sort of try to then size the proportion of what means what a catch-up campaign might mean in that age group. So that's uh, at a national scale. Now, if you so now we're down to uh, the north, we know that in the north holds approximately thirty percent of the population in England, and actually in the north also, or um, uh, that that actually so represents fifty percent of the poorest neighbourhoods. So the Liverpool City region in particular was reported as one of the poorest laps in England. And the health inequalities that were already existing before the pandemic have probably just got worse throughout the pandemic. So we're talking about really regions of self-focus in terms of the catch-up campaign that really need to put emphasis on regions such as the LC or Liverpool City regions, where health inequalities have been and have probably gotten worse over and as a result of the pandemic. I guess it's, this is an obvious thing to to say that for you know for parents it that they will want their children to be protected uh, against particular diseases. But I guess there's a there's a sort of wider public health implication, isn't there, of of having a large cohort of the population who aren't protected. I mean, can you just tell us through what, why are why at a basic level are people concerned that not enough children are, are vaccinated? That's right. So parents will be concerned about their own children in the context of, you know, childhood immunizations. But obviously, it's also protecting. So we, you've heard that word so many times for the pandemic, herd immunity. So we're talking about pneumonia, for example, vaccination of pneumonia. You vaccinate children in order for them not to transmit diseases into their grandparents, which very often will be sort of very often their primary caregivers, the one that will they will look after them while the mum and dads are going to work to earn money and sort of, you know, keep the economy going. So, yes, definitely. You mentioned the Liverpool City region, which is obviously where you're based. And I know that there is a lot of great work, quite sort of uh, advanced pioneering work that's taking place in uh, in your region in terms of vaccines and infectious disease. Can you just tell us a bit a bit more about that? Yes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start really biased, right? Because obviously I, I live in in Liverpool, so. But you, you might not. I'm sure you know, Rob, that uh, the Liverpool situation was awarded government status in recognition for its vaccine discovery, development and manufacturing capabilities. And this recognition was translated into the launch of the HPO program last year. So HPO is an acronym that stands for High Potential Opportunity. 
So this HPL program essentially aims at boosting the local industry and business with the ultimate goal of boosting job creation. And the initiative is primarily supported by the Liverpool Group Platform team, uh, but in very close collaboration with the Department of International Trade. So this HPL program um, that is taking place in the Liverpool City region, and I, I've, I've sort of experienced it firsthand because I work quite closely actually to some of the um, uh, Liverpool Group Platform uh, team members. And they were at the World Vaccine Congress in Barcelona last year. They were again at the Vaccine Congress in Washington just earlier this month. And they've really put, you know, all the self-funding that they have available to them to them to really promote, put Liverpool's region on the map and really let everybody know, not just at the national level, but also European, but also international globally, that in the Liverpool City regions, we are really a vaccine hub. So that's one thing. And, you know, this is essentially backed up. The HPO is backed up really by the history of uh, all the vaccine entities that have been taking place in the Liverpool City region. And I'm sure, again, you know, that um, Liverpool City region is a hub for biomanufacturing. So you have global leaders such as AstraZeneca, uh, CSL slash Securius, you have uh, Bristol Myers, you have Teva. So global leaders who have essentially, um, you know, settled and sort of, uh, built their home here in the Liverpool City region. Another initiative which is worth mentioning here is ICON, so ICON, double I, so Infection Innovation Consortium, which was created in 2020, so in the middle of pandemics, really, when you think about it, and which really embodies that joint effort between private and industrial sectors, to or the private and the public sectors to come together and create a synergy here in the Liverpool City region and offer a breadth of expertise along the vaccine pipeline that is you know, that's the ambition that is unrivaled anywhere else in the UK. And the icon, uh, the lead of ICON Consortium is the Liverpool Tropical School, but we also have partners such as the University of Liverpool, uh, Unilever for private partners, as well as Infect Therapeutics and Evertex. So and you, all of this coming together, you know, this is just really so early days still. And I know that uh, so ICON is led by Janet Hemingway and they're doing a fantastic job. So, yeah, it's there's really a lot going on in the prestige environment. So it's really, really nice to be part of that. Yeah, it sounds like an exciting uh, time for the for the area. And obviously it's great for, you know, for jobs and, and for, uh, you know, the business community in uh, on Merseyside, but in terms of what it could potentially mean for, you know, the wider world, I mean, presumably the hope is that what you're doing in Liverpool City region will have a, a global impact rather than just impacting locally. That's definitely it, yes. Yeah. So we have, you know, in, in addition to ICON, we have another initiative, which is the Pandemic Institute, again, which you might have heard, and heard of, and which is really uh, based around, you know, not just addressing vaccination um, at the uh, local level or national level or in high, even in high-income countries, but really also targeting infectious diseases in low- and middle-income countries. So really talking about global health here. And that's something that, you know, that Liverpool, again, has been always uh, played a very prominent place. Liverpool has a, a, a proud history, doesn't it, in terms of, uh, you know, what, is being done in the city to tackle sort of public health issues like going back to the the first public baths and to combat the cholera epidemic in the 1830s and obviously the most recent uh you know pilot mass testing during covid 19. i mean is, is that something you're conscious of in terms of the city like the, the city city's history on you know being at the forefront of the response to these public health emergencies 
I have to be honest, I don't know, you know, I only know what I've read about the history of what Liverpool have contributed to in terms of, like you said, cholera and so and so forth. But I would say if yourself want to bring it to a more, you know, timely context, and you mentioned mass testing for COVID, uh, you're probably thinking that the SMART study uh, that was um, run, was it uh, in 2020, so sort of run between November and sort of earlier 2021 and expanded into the summer as well. So we were, again, that's another, uh, another sort of initiative that really put Liverpool on the map. Um, where it was essentially the world's first city-wide mass testing for a rapid antigens for COVID-19. And that really sort of um, had a snowball effect on understanding the impact of mass testing on the prevention of COVID-19 diseases, and especially in terms of preventing COVID-19-related hospitalization cases. So the study really, and, and the, the most recent uh, results were just published in November last year in the, um, in the BMG, in British Medical Journal, and essentially reporting that that mass testing um, can, was able to reduce the number of hospitalization cases for COVID-19 by 25%. And if you want numbers as to what that 20% present is, if you're in the UK, across the UK, that 25% equal to essentially around 230,000 cases that have been prevented. And in England, it's about 140,000 cases. So that palace study essentially allowed voluntary testing to anybody over the age of five um, that lived or worked in the Liverpool City region really played a prominent role in understanding how we could detect infection, infectious people sooner. So and essentially being able to disrupt the transmission chain. The final thing, Marie, can you just tell us a bit more about uh, Renewvax, which is the spin-out company that you have co-founded? I mean, how, how did it how did it come about and what, what does it what does it do? Yes, yeah, so uh, we started moving a little bit away from the pandemic. So it's something that started, you know, the, the seminal idea probably started about seven or eight years ago. Um, it was initiated with some some um, f- uh, fun- some funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, looking at surveillance program and understanding the evolution and the dynamic of a bacteria called the Pneumococcus. So it's important just a little bit of background on Pneumococcus. The Pneumococcus is a bacteria that we all carry at the back of our throat. So in adults, about 10% of us will carry it. And in children, between 50 and 75% of our children, so it looks just like you, I think you mentioned young children yesterday, will carry the bacteria at the back of our throat. But under certain circumstances, such as, let's say, a co-infection with flu, for example, or in young children, they're just vulnerable to the disease. And elderly patients will just become vulnerable to the disease as well. They will then develop life-threatening infectious disease, which essentially mostly pneumonia, but also meningitis and sepsis. So the work that was started about seven years ago from the case was looking at how these bacteria evolves in humans and population at a global scale. And we um, essentially exploited those results to then ask the question from those genomic data, can we potentially profile a vaccine that could address the shortcomings of current vaccines? Again, just a little bit of background on this. So the pneumococcal vaccine, there are some already existing that are given to children. They've been uh, rolled out in the early 2000s and they're very, very good at what they do. But a little bit of what happened for COVID-19 is that they are only protecting against a limited set of variants. So we know that there are so far 100 different variants for the pneumococcus. Current vaccines, 
the highest valency that we have so far protects against 20 of those variants. So we're essentially talking about approximately 20% protection, meaning that the other 80% are just out there left unprotected and not just that, but meaning that they can actually rise in the incidence. So what you're doing is you're dampening the cases caused by those 20 variants, but all the other are 80% are taking over, which means that the net burden remains very high. And that affects high income, low medium incomes, that's across the board. So while we, the, the challenge that we took on um, by forming the company is that we want, we want to create a vaccine that can, that can essentially offer coverage again, those hundred serotypes. And we, the, obviously initially it was just a research project, but we said in order to accelerate the program, we need to create a team of expert team of people that scientists and business and market access people that we can then accelerate the development of what we've done over the past seven years at the University of Liverpool as a research project to really take it to the clinic as fast as we can. And the reason why we're doing it as well, as well is there's a lot of impetus from, again, the WHO and from public health bodies from the UK government that are essentially saying we need a universal vaccine because the permacrovac disease burden is just getting out of control. Not just the fact that the burden is out of control, but it's also the fact that any new variants will be more prone to developing antibacterial resistance. So that's another, we could have a podcast just around uh, more, but essentially it is that disease is still very much out there. Not just is that it is out there, but any other very new variants that emerges is actually more likely to develop antimicrobial resistance. So it's really also in Renewvax, also tackling those antimicrobial resistant um, pathogens that are still out there, even though there are vaccines for it, vaccines are not sufficient or not efficacious enough, and that we essentially need to develop a new generation of vaccines that can address what current vaccines cannot do. So that's what Renew Vax is about. It, it sounds like Liverpool is going to remain at the, the forefront of the uh, you know, back, vaccination world, which is great, great to see. So um, Dr. Marie O'Brien, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much, Rob. It was great. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.